Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a great episode for you all this week with our regular check-in with Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplow and Shira Afron, IPF's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research. Michael, Shira, and I will be discussing and analyzing a host of relevant topics, including the tragic earthquake this week in Turkey and Syria, the recent escalation of violence in Jerusalem and the West Bank, and the Netanyahu government's continued intent to push through its reform-slash-overhaul-slash-destruction of the Israeli judicial system. But first, a few thoughts from me. All right, let's check in on the state of play with the above-mentioned judicial overhaul. Where do things stand? So first, protests against the government continue, and they're expanding. This past weekend was the fifth straight Saturday night of demonstrations, with over 100,000 people all across the country, again, taking to the streets and making their voices heard. As mentioned, the protest movement has grown. IDF reservists, high school students, lawyers, doctors, economists, business leaders, American Jewish leaders, even Secretary of State Anthony Blinken have all come out publicly against the government's intended plans. We've seen more high-tech firms and industry leaders announce their pooling investments out of Israel, and we've even seen major international financial institutions like J.P. Morgan, Barclays, and HSBC publicly warn of the negative economic impact that judicial reforms could have on the Israeli economy. And by the way, this is only a partial list. I spared you uh, the entire list for the sake of time. According to protest organizers, the next stage is more marches to and protests in Jerusalem itself, including outside Prime Minister Netanyahu's home, and possibly a general strike next Monday to, and I quote, make the country grind to a halt. Like we've said before in this podcast, all of this, all of it, is unprecedented. And how, you may ask, have Bibi Netanyahu and his government responded? Basically, They've dismissed all of the concerns and warnings raised about the future of the Israeli legal system, the future of Israeli democracy, even the future of the Israeli economy. In their minds, these are all either A, uninformed scaremongering, or B, politicized scaremongering, drummed up by a hostile and disloyal left-wing opposition. Just this morning, a Likud Knesset member close to Netanyahu said that J.P. Morgan, yes, J.P. Morgan, the bank, was part of the radical left. You really can't make this stuff up. The government has shown zero inclination of backing down yet. They've dismissed all mediation efforts, including the most recent one by President Isaac Herzog. And it seems like they're just moving ahead with the first pieces of legislation, possibly even in the coming days. Stay tuned. Let's get to Michael and Shira. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. We haven't spoken since late December and our end-of-year awards, so happy 2023 to you both, maybe. How are you both doing? Good, good. Thanks, Neri. To be clear, we haven't spoken on a podcast since December. Right. I think think we've spoken. Yeah, publicly. Yeah, publicly on the record. Yeah. I just, I just don't want people to think that, that we hate each other so much that, that we only speak on podcasts. <laughs> that, 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 right. We spoke, a few, we, spoke, we spoke a couple of hours ago. Yes. <laughs> and yesterday, and the day before yesterday. And we don't want people to think I only exist as a voice on a podcast. That's also true. Uh, and I'll be seeing both of you uh, in just a few days as well. 
Um, but on to our business for today's episode. A few things to get into, but I wanted to start with the uh, big and tragic news uh, out of this region uh, in recent days, and that's the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, which was actually felt in Israel, uh, although I personally didn't feel it. Uh, Shira, did you feel the tremors the other night? I didn't feel the tremor the first one, but there was another one um, yesterday at um, 12.30 in the afternoon, 12.30 p.m. And then I was at a big high-rise in big building in Tel Aviv. I was on the 37th floor, and I definitely felt it. Oh, wow. So you did feel it. Okay. Uh, I didn't feel that one either. So just for the record, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and the death toll is already in the thousands uh, in both Turkey and Syria, but uh, tragically will likely rise to many times that. Uh, IDF search and rescue team already landed in Turkey this morning to aid in the effort to find survivors. Michael, uh, as a bona fide Turkey expert, I want to start with you. Give us some context and perspective, uh, if you could, on earthquakes in Turkey and where this one stands. Uh, they do happen f- fairly often, but not on this scale. Is that right? That's right. Turkey sits on a pretty big fault line because it's in between two plates. Um, Israel, by the way, also sits uh, sits on a fault line, but, but Turkey's, Turkey's in a more dangerous position. And so earthquakes are not infrequent, but, but uh, on this scale, it's been, it's been decades. And... When I was briefly living in Turkey in 2010, when I was looking for apartments in Istanbul, one of the things that would always be advertised rental listings was that a bill, if if it applied, was that a building was up to earthquake code or had been reinforced against earthquakes because everybody knows the danger of earthquakes in Turkey. And also because the building codes in Turkey with regard to earthquakes for decades were incredibly shoddy. And even up until literally today, oftentimes are ignored. And there have been all sorts of laws and regulations passed that are designed to make it easier to actually evade these building codes. And it's part of the reason why when you see some of these videos out of Gaziantep or Diyarbakar, and you see buildings standing right next to each other and one you know, falls completely to the ground total rubble, nothing standing, and the one next to it um, is standing. Sometimes that's luck of the draw, but sometimes that's because of the complete discrepancy in how these are built and whether people follow the codes or not. So it's a it's a huge problem. And, um, you know, so so much of the tragic death toll, I, I worry, is not just because of the size of the earthquake, which, you know, they had those two that were both almost eight on the Richter scale. And the first one was a relatively shallow one, and that causes more damage. Um, but some of it is due to Turkish building codes and the extent to which they're ignored. Right. Uh, and it also prompted a wide discussion in recent days in Israel over uh, both the fault line that you mentioned uh, that Israel lies on, uh, as well as the building codes here in Israel. Uh, and from what I've gathered, uh Buildings that were built, especially before 1991, 1992, before the first Gulf War, uh, people aren't that optimistic or certain that they'll uh, withstand a, a major earthquake here in Israel. And so uh, it's prompted a whole a whole debate, probably long overdue, about building codes in Israel. Uh, Shira, on the diplomatic front, as I mentioned, Israel has sprung into action and got involved immediately. Uh, also, 
senior Israeli leaders uh, expressed their condolences and offered their assistance. Is this, to your mind, another step in the Israel-Turkey rapprochement of last year, where we saw renewed diplomatic ties and reopened embassies? Uh, or would this kind of Israeli assistance and uh, condolences happen anyway and regardless, just given the scale of the humanitarian disaster? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get to Israel um, in a second, which I think is an interesting angle. But I think, you know, when we speak about it in perspective, at least Erdogan himself said this is the most devastating earthquake uh, Turkey has suffered since 1939. So, yes, it has had... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, tens or dozens of uh, earthquakes since then with thousands of casualties. But but the this scale, that earthquake of 1939, uh, 1939 you had 33,000 uh, uh, people uh, dead, over 100,000 uh, wounded. And sadly, we're, we could be approaching these numbers again, uh, which is which which is really uh, devastating. And, you know, when it comes to assistance, not just Israel's assistance, Turkey has really uh, ramped up its, uh, its, uh, its, uh, its um, uh, crisis response uh, capabilities. It's much better today uh, in terms of uh, crisis response, sort of the, the emergency response and um, um uh, the, the 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 help it's able to offer uh, and and quickly uh, to its people. The problem is most of this capacity, most of these capabilities are centered around you know the the the, the main cities. And the earthquake actually hit you know uh, the what we call the periphery, right? The southern uh, region, the southern eastern parts of the country, um, where are, there's no infrastructure. There are barely hospitals. No ambulance services. Roads have been uh, damaged severely, so you can't even evacuate people. Those are also areas where you have people, uh, over a half a million uh, Syrian refugees escaped the war. So sadly, um, you know, the improvement in, in Turkish uh, capabilities may not, uh, may not be seen uh, as it would if, if this was something that, you know, maybe in uh, Michael's old neighborhood in, in Istanbul. So, more than you know, twenty um, more than twenty countries uh, already sent uh, aid and offered aid, uh, including Israel. Israeli delegation is pretty big; it's one hundred fifty people. And I must admit, I was you know I was impressed because it was really well organized and quick and agile, and and and, and the, the the pace is really critical, right? Because uh, in such disasters, we're talking about a race against time, trying to get to as you can, it's freezing. Uh, there. Um, also, as you mentioned, right, the political and professional um, rankings, you know, you, you really see sympathy and empathy that I think is is uh, a product, is, is, is a byproduct. It's, it's enabled more because of the normalized ties, right? The atmosphere is really better. It's not perfect, it's better. Um, of course, you know, the Israeli assistance here, the aid is just a drop a drop of the bucket given the scale. Uh, but Israel seems to be doing uh, what what it can be doing now. If you're asking if this is a new phase, I don't I don't think so in a sense because even hadn't uh, Israel and Turkey normalized their ties, Israel would have still offered assistance and very likely Turkey would have accepted it. But the atmosphere is much better both for Israel to to offer uh, with no pushback here, obviously, but also I think for Turkey to accept it. Um, so that's. That's that's the interesting angle um, on on it. Okay, Michael. Final question on the 
Turkish earthquake. Do you think there will be any impact on the upcoming uh, May election and Turkish President Erdogan's chances? Do you think public anger at a possibly bad or subpar government response could actually impact the vote? Uh, I think absolutely it can impact the vote. Uh, Erdogan is in the biggest trouble he's ever been in politically since he emerged on the national stage in 2002. Uh, Inflation in Turkey over the last year has been 75%. The economy is still pretty bad. Um, The opposition actually seems to be getting its act together, despite the fact that the leading opposition presidential candidate, Ekrem Imamoglu, of Istanbul uh, was convicted and and sent to prison and um, possibly will be banned from politics. Uh, And that, in some ways, seemed like it backfired on Erdogan as well, because everybody knows that that's Erdogan's political interference, or I should say interference in the judicial system for political purposes. And when you take all of that and then you add on to the fact that this earthquake has been devastating, the response so far from the Turkish government seems to have been uh, underwhelming. And and even on top of that, the fact that it's in southeastern Turkey, where you have a large Kurdish population where conservative and more religious Kurds have tended to vote for AKP and Erdogan in the past, if uh, if he loses the conservative and more religious Kurds voting for AKP because they are upset about the insufficient response to this earthquake, then I think it makes his path to winning in May even tougher. Yeah, I right. And if I can add to this, uh, Neri, because I, I agree with Michael, you know, 100%, I think, there is some sort of marginal benefit for Erdogan because he's getting all, you know, he is having world leaders call him and express their sympathy. And again, Turkey's in the news is in, I don't want to say a positive uh, way because it's not positive, but it's not definitely, you know, but it's not like Turkey, the troublemaker. Uh, with that said, he is facing elections and his nice rhetoric is not going to be uh, enough, is sufficient here, right? He has to perform, uh, uh, which is going to be uh, very difficult. Um, and, and you know, Turkey, uh, the fact that he has these uh, dismal uh, approval rating that uh, Michael suggests also comes against the backdrop of, you know, inflation rate that is now 57%. In October, it was 86%. The Turkish lira is at the bottom. I think it's like 18 Turkish liras to the dollar. Um, the economies and, you know, ties with the U.S., ties with Europe, uh, with with other countries, of course, judicial reform, uh, human rights. The only advantage that maybe Erdogan has is that he has a fragmented opposition. He's facing a fragmented opposition with no um, um, uh, agreed upon leader. Now, on next week, I think it's February 13th, when the opposition is supposed to declare who's going to be his opponent in the May 14th elections. And it's not clear that they are going to be able to uh, agree on someone. There was uh, uh, there was someone who was uh, very promising. Uh, I probably can't pronounce his name right. Michael Kevin's Ikram Amala, right? Istanbul's uh, mayor. Um, and he it was a tough opponent, and that's why he was put in prison <laughs> in December. So um, it's going to be difficult for Erdogan to win the elections. On the other hand, if there's no opposition, uh, that could make his life easier. But there's no question Turkey is not in a good place. Okay. Uh, very interesting. And uh, obviously, it's uh, of the moment, given uh, given the events of recent days. Uh, but 
that's enough moonlighting as the Turkish policy pod. Uh, we are, after all, the, the Israel policy pod. Uh, and so I wanted to shift to uh, uh, events closer to home, which is the ongoing security escalation in both Jerusalem and the West Bank in recent weeks. Uh, just by way of context for our listeners, uh, we obviously had a very deadly terror attack in Jerusalem two weekends ago. Uh, seven Israelis killed outside a synagogue on a Friday night after Shabbat prayers. Uh, the most deadly terror attack in Israel since 2011. Uh, but the day before that, we had a particularly deadly IDF raid into the Janine refugee camp where 10 Palestinians were killed, uh, mostly militants, but also one 60-year-old Palestinian woman was killed. And just this past weekend, five Hamas militants were killed in a refugee camp near Jericho in the West Bank, bringing the total number of Palestinians killed in the West Bank just since the start of this year to over 40. Um, and all of this, obviously, on top of last year's very high death toll on both sides, but especially on the Palestinian side. So, Michael, I want to start with you because you had a very interesting column last week uh, in your weekly Coplo column, which everyone should check out if they don't read that already. But you took to task the idea of there being this cycle of violence between Israelis and Palestinians, and you called it more a inevitable outcome of the structure of the conflict and the relationships between the two sides. So big picture, I'd love to start here with you unpacking this idea for us of no conf no cycle of violence, rather. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's naive for people to think that when you have the IDF in Area A in such a heavy way and making over 600 raids every single month and so you know we're averaging over 20 idf raids into area a every single day and you know listeners should remember that area a is supposed to be under effectively complete palestinian sovereignty both administrative control and security control when that's happening and it every time it happens it weakens the pa and brings palestinian gunmen into the streets and you also have the entire place awash in firearms. I think it is notable that recent attacks, terrorist attacks on Israelis have been committed with guns uh, as opposed to knives or car ramming attacks. Um, when you have this going on every single day, it's not, it's not a cycle. Um, it's, there, there's inevitably going to be Palestinian deaths and not only of terrorists and, and militants, but deaths of Palestinian innocents. There is going to be Palestinian terrorism against Israelis and anger against Israelis. And I think if the people, if, if we look at it and we say, well, um, this particular Israeli action caused this particular Palestinian action, um, that may be true in some cases, but I think we're missing the larger picture that this entire system is guaranteed to cause friction and violence and deaths on both sides. Um, and unless something radically changes, I don't think there's an answer to this. You know, we can, we can talk about various ways in which the two sides should and can de-escalate and stabilize things, but that's not solving a problem. That's putting a Band-Aid on a very small part of the problem. Um, and without looking at this, this larger picture and the way both sides operate, it's never going to, it's never going to get better. Right. Right, right. Um, Shira? I, of course, I agree with Michael. Yeah. That, that's some, that's some, I, I like, I like that guy. That sums it all up, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I agree with Michael. And 
this system is unsustainable. But I think Jericho is, is interesting. Jericho is important. It's to me more interesting than speaking about Janine. Uh, there are two things in this context. First of all, we're saying this is not, you know, Janine or Nablus. Jericho is this like boring, <laughs> quiet place, right? It's on the periphery. It's really a surprise that something would happen there. It's also really the backyard of the USC, the United States Security Coordinator. There are a lot of Palestinian security forces training there. This is not an area where we could say, well, this is where the PA does not have control. So that's one. Uh, the second, um, the second thing is, Neri, what you said, I mean, we're talking about, uh, uh, uh a group, uh, identified as Hamas. So when the PA, uh, is having difficulties operating in Jenin, they don't control the area, but they also say, well, these are Tanzim and Fatah and it embarrasses us and we don't have legitimacy, but the rest rationale for the Palestinian security forces is that they are supposed to be facing uh, terror groups Hamas and Hamas is within this definition. So what happened here? And I think this is where we, uh, this is a, a cause for alarm because we can say it's area A and Israeli raids, but these were the optimal conditions for the Palestinian security forces to act and they didn't. And it's very frustrating for the Israeli side, which even those that really trust the PA and support the PA and say, okay, uh, you can't uh, operate because you have a legitimacy issue. You're embarrassed. Some areas you don't control, but, but here it means that they could, but they didn't want to. And this is something that is more concerning to me than, than the rise in violence. This hurts, uh, damages the trust between the two sides. And I'm talking about not the political levels. I'm talking about the professionals. And if you don't have trust, there's no like, uh, oh, let's have a, a program to strengthen the trust between the sides, mm -hmm. right? You can strengthen trust. Trust is something that you build over time and, and, and existed. And I'm, I'm, in my view, um, I hope thing, uh, incidents like that uh, uh, don't uh, happen again because uh, it's dangerous. I think that's a that's a that's a great point, and and um, I hope it's an aberration um, because she was correct. Jericho is a, a completely different uh, context from Janine and and Nablus, um, but you know the fact that we did see this in Jericho uh, just at least for me. Doesn't not to not to let the the passive off the hook by any means, but um, at least for me, just reinforces how bad the political context is, um, and one hopes that things do get reversed pretty quickly because she was right. If you have the IDF now having to routinely go into a place like Jericho, then it's tough to tough to talk about any type of robust security coordination. That's meaningful uh, if that kind of thing keeps on happening. So for our listeners, PASIF is the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, just for the record. Uh, and yes, Jericho was uh, was a concerning, I guess, expansion of this ongoing IDF operation that's been with us now for almost a year since last March. Uh, and Michael Shearer, you're right. Uh, it's normally focused on the Northern West Bank, Janine, Nablus, uh, and now Jericho. There was this like, Hamas cell. 
that launched a shooting attack uh, on a restaurant uh, near the Dead Sea, uh, the junction where Route 90 meets or Route 1 meets Route 90 uh, on the on the drive down to the Dead Sea. And uh, luckily, uh, that militant uh, his his gun jammed, but they ran away back to Jer- back to Jericho. So that's what the IDF was was trying to go after this uh, the cell. Uh, in a refugee camp near Jericho. Uh, Shira, we're talking now about the Palestinian response. Uh, they, two weeks ago, said that they were suspending security coordination, right? right. Uh, and that got a lot of headlines. But to the best of our knowledge, they haven't really suspended security coordination, despite the fact that they might not be doing everything that Israel and maybe America and the international community want them to do. Is that accurate? To the best of your understanding? Yes, yes. But they suspended elements of the security cooperation. Um, you know, public elements of the security cooperation are suspended. Uh, it's not like uh, previous suspension that there was no contact at all. But, 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 um, but there is less coordination. Um, it was interesting, I think, when you had Secretary Blinken here on the ground and then obviously he left uh, his senior advisors, Barbara Leaf and Hadi Amar, uh, lacking a better description, basically babysit the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, and they had to shuttle between the two sides. We're talking about what is Ramallah and Jerusalem? <laughs> what is the distance? Several kilometers? Um, yeah, it should be a 20-minute drive without traffic. A 20-minute drive, and you had the Americans basically mediating. And this also uh, between you know, um, professionals, not just, not the political uh, ranking, which tells you that the atmosphere is very, very, very negative. It's true that it's the political atmosphere, but it's events on the ground. It's Palestinian frustration. It's Israeli frustration uh, because they uh, are frustrated with Palestinian um, uh, lack of action the way the effective action that Israel would like to see. Um, the Palestinians seem to be heading in the approach that they uh, would like to keep approaching international organization, going to the UN Security Council, uh, ICC, ICJ. I mean, this is continuing. Um, any request of Israel to to assume some risk and try to uh, back out a little bit in the context of what Michael spoke about, to let the Palestinians uh, operate and try to take control, um, Israel is just is just not there. They're not willing to do. So it's almost a game of chicken, which really damages the both sides. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the Palestinian side and the administration of Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas would say that uh, to now send our forces into, whether it's a refugee camp in Jericho or definitely the Janine refugee camp would be political suicide because we can't just go in the day after the Israelis raided. That we can't be seen to so blatantly be siding with uh, with the occupation, uh, and so I think, like you said, there's a political dynamic definitely on the Palestinian side, uh, but also on the Israeli side, uh, which I want to get into. Michael, coming out of the Jerusalem terror attack, we saw the Netanyahu government take several steps, uh, but nothing that, to my understanding, was that dramatically different than what we've seen from the Bennett Lapid government. Uh, over the past year, uh, in terms of kind of counterterror operations, uh, Netanyahu's 
senior ministers were very proud that they sealed off a few houses of terrorist families in East Jerusalem, uh, but they really didn't take any active measures like they were promising uh, all throughout the Bennett Lapid government's tenure. Uh, when Netanyahu and his far-right allies uh, were calling them weak and soft on terror. Uh, So let's start off here. Michael, what did you make, so far at least, of the Netanyahu government's security response to uh, this uptick in terrorism? I'm I'm not that surprised. I mean, we've seen Netanyahu for over a decade, uh, and this is is generally the way he operates. Um, He talks a lot tougher than than he acts. Um, I think part of it is caution. Part of it is... The fact that he no doubt has Shabak and, and IDF in his ear telling him that if he seals off entire neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, it's only going to make the problem worse. And the reality is that there's there's only so much that can be done to, to cut this off absent some sort of political solution. Um, and, you know, we, we know that. Um, uh, the Israeli security establishment knows that. And I think Netanyahu probably knows probably knows that as well. Um, you know, the, the the predictable, the most predictable part about this was Itamar Ben-Gvir uh, going and saying all sorts of things and blaming the attorney general for uh, for, for the terrorism and talking about what he's what he's going to do next. Um, but, you know, when it comes to Netanyahu, I think that he is reticent about doing things that are going to inflame the entire situation, especially when politically this is not actually what interests him. What interests him at the moment is judicial reform, such as it is, and getting rid of his getting rid of his uh, his cases. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that, that that's where his focus is. Sure. What do you make of the Netanyahu government response so far? Were you surprised by the, shall we say, moderation or uh, intelligence behind the the very uh, conservative response uh, is this BB kind of uh, determining policy uh, in the face of Ben Gvir and Smotrich and other hardliners in the cabinet. Is it due to just Blinken and U.S. officials being here on the ground? And I guess in another few days or a few weeks, we may see a shift in Israeli government policy. What did you make of it so far? Look, we know we know Netanyahu. Um, he's track. He's tra- record that he's been very cautious on these issues, right? Um, so, so it's not surprising. He's clearly challenged by um, his coalition partners, but he still has the upper hand. Um, we're seeing signs that U.S. pressure definitely not not just U.S. right uh, uh, pressure by different countries uh, definitely help. Uh, you know, Hanel Ahmar, right? <laughs> we I, I had a bet with someone with an Israeli colleague here about whether. Um, uh, the you know the government would would evacuate it and and of course not they postponed again uh, their response to, to, to the court because of uh, immense international pressure that Netanyahu is definitely sensitive to uh, more than his coalition partners. Um, we also see it on some um, on other uh, bigger issues, but it is also important to note that some. Actions are not at the, the, at the level of a prime minister. They're not even the level of a defense minister, right? When we talk about, let's say, home demolitions of uh, illegal construction of Palestinians, this is something that the coordinator, uh, COGAP, the coordinator of government activities in the territories, the, 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 the two-star general uh, in charge, uh, he can determine. He can determine scale. He can determine timing. There are things that can be done and managed at the professional level. 
And um, there's a lot of leeway there. Um, so this is, I think, also important to know in terms of what what is what what is really student uh, Tanyao juggling and what is uh, what is at the professional level. But but I do want to go back to you know sort of not not to blabber the point, but but if the professional rankings, those that work with the Palestinians. They- Day and night, even when, even when Israeli politicians ignore them and say that they want them to collapse and, you know, some Smotrich and Ben Gvir and, and even the times of, you know, Bennett, who had a different policy, but at least, um, but, but did say that he's not going to meet Abu Mazen. You have Israelis uh, in uniform mostly, but, but also not from the, from the security services that meet with Palestinians all the time. And if they lose trust, in cooperation with the Palestinians, then we're all doomed. Uh, you can't uh, disconnect it from 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 the political uh, environment, obviously. But I think this is where also, when we're talking about, you know, IPF is an American organization, this is where we also need to talk about what, what the international community can do. You know, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, the Palestinian president, in his meeting with Blinken, um, it was reported that he told him, you know, you were here. The president was here in the summer. You were here in April. You promised us things and nothing happened. You can't court, you know, doing your um, uh, this diplomacy between visits um, doesn't help us. It doesn't lead us anywhere good. Um, and and this is, you know, in, in this such a combustive uh, political uh, situation on both sides, by the way, um, this is where the international community can come in and affect both the, the professionals and the political levels. And I'd emphasize on top of that, that there certainly is a real role for the United States to play. Um, you know, we'll, I think it'll, we'll, we'll see in the coming days and weeks to what extent Barbara and Hattie were successful in, uh, in getting stuff done between the two sides. But uh, Shira and I wrote, wrote a, a memo um, that, that, we'll be, that we'll be putting out very soon um, outlining ways in which the United States can help de-escalate between Israelis and Palestinians and get things back to a more productive, a more productive place. And, you know, on, on a lot of these types of things, whether it's brokering some sort of agreement on security in Area A between, between uh, Israel and, and the PA or um, coordinating joint condemnations of Palestinian terrorism with some of the Abraham Accord states, which... Uh, may give the PA cover uh, to to do something similar and ensuring that civil coordination continues and economic plans. These are all things where the United States obviously can't step in and do these things, but it can help the various parties, whether it's Israel, the Palestinians, other other regional actors, to coordinate on some of these. Um, and that's where I think the U.S. role really does come in. And you know, we 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 at IPF have not been shy about our view that the Biden administration needs to spend more time and energy, and particularly focus on this. You know, to Shira's point about um, doing it in between diplomatic visits, that's just that's just not going to work, right? You need you need some more sustained engagement, and uh, I hope that we see that going forward. Were you pleasantly surprised, though, by the fact that? Uh Blinken and even before Blinken, Jake Sullivan was here and Bill Burns was here, uh, the head of the CIA and National Security Advisor, uh, respectively. Do you think this is a sign that the Biden administration is proactively being engaged on the Israeli-Palestinian file? I'm not sure. I think that uh, when you're sending Burns and Sullivan and then Blinken immediately after, um, you're probably coordinating more on issues around Iran, which is certainly important. Um 
but probably coordinating more on issues around Iran and general regional security than you are on Israeli-Palestinian issues. Uh, and, you know, I certainly, I certainly was open about the fact that I didn't think Blinken should be going over there just because of what it, what it gives to Netanyahu politically before he's actually demonstrated that he's willing to be attuned to U.S. concerns on Israeli-Palestinian issues. Um, you know, I think that they were obviously forced to deal with Israeli-Palestinian issues, given the timing of it, uh, and given that you had Blinken getting there uh, right after the the raid in Janine and right after the terrorist attack in Jerusalem. So he didn't have a choice, but I don't think... He had, he had to address it. Exactly. But I, I don't think I don't think that was that was the, the intention when they decided that he was going to go over there, you know, week, weeks ago. Okay. Um, just for the record, my own opinion about uh, the recent escalation, uh, I agree with both of you that uh, Netanyahu has, uh, for now, the upper hand vis-a-vis the, uh, the hardliners like Ben Gvir and Smotrich, but I think it's very tenuous that uh, we haven't seen a follow-up attack really in a week and a half. But if we had seen uh, another deadly attack on, on Israeli civilians, uh, then the, the government would have had to respond very differently and very aggressively, like they promised, like I said, for a year and a half, uh, slamming the Bennett Lapid government as being uh, weak on terror. And so I think that allowed Netanyahu to uh, keep, uh, keep the, the hounds at bay uh, but I'm not sure that it's uh, necessarily sustainable politically, uh, both in terms of just any future kind of deadly escalations uh, and also what Ben Gvir and Smotrich uh, were promised in the coalition agreements. Uh, we have yet to see how Netanyahu divides uh, administrative control in the West Bank between uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and Smotrich. Uh, we have yet to see how Itamar Ben-Gvir actually deploys uh, his border police forces uh, in the West Bank and also East, East Jerusalem. Uh, he was given direct control over uh, the border police forces. Uh, so I think it's it's too early to tell. Uh, but I guess uh, the positive thing in terms of uh, the new Netanyahu government is that so far they've been a lot more moderate than maybe uh, their campaign rhetoric would have suggested even just a few weeks ago. Um Final issue for you both to tackle, and there's no avoiding it. Uh, it's the judicial overhaul plans, which the Netanyahu government is still uh, intent on pushing through. Um, I wanted to get your perspectives from your uh, distinct perches. Uh, Shira, let's start with you. We do this for a living, obviously, and we're based in Israel. Uh, we deal with politics and we deal with policy. But give us a ground-level view from Israel and your own kind of personal and maybe even familial circles on how you see the big story now in Israel, which is a judicial overhaul and then the pushback and the protests uh, that we're seeing from all quarters against Netanyahu's plans. How do you view things? Right. Um, You know, this is really the defining issue now in Israel. We speak a lot about the Palestinians, and this is not something at the top of the Israeli public mindset. Um, there's a real Unless struggle. it's a terror attack. Excuse me? Unless there's a terror attack. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, this it. brings it to the forefront. Yeah. But uh, but also within this context, it's easy uh, for the proponents of the judicial reforms that the judicial reforms will, will uh, restore uh, governance and enable um, effective treatment, right? Which, which really, it's hard to see the connection. Um, 
So obviously, um, there is um, a big argument, an ideological argument about the independence of the courts, um, <laughs> independence of, of the court, the separation of authorities, uh, what democracy means, the very core of, of democracy. There's a real, you know, argument about it that, that, that I think threatens, you know, the, 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 the social fabric of Israel. I mean, you live here too, uh, Neri. I, I can't count the number of uh, uh, what what uh, what's up groups uh, where people are fighting. It trickled into the schools, uh, the school uh, parents uh, in at work. Um, it's very difficult to have an, a substantive argument. Because if you say that uh, you think a reform is okay, but not this reform, you're immediately uh, accused of being anti-government and, and elitist, part of part of the I don't know, you know, sort of like Ashkenazi leftist. I mean, they throw whatever adjective you want, um, and 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 of course, when you're um, when you're saying that maybe you should consider you're 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 a BB supporter and you're a fascist and you're against democracy, so so something the substance substance is is thrown uh, out, um, and and the arguments there is an impressive uh, pushback, uh, quite an impressive pushback. So you see demonstrations, you see uh, there's on on Sunday on Sunday or Monday, actually, Michael, when when IPF delegation is here, the whole country is supposed to be on strike. Um, not, don't worry, I'm not going to be on strike. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that you won't be, Shira. <laughs> I wouldn't be on strike. Um, but uh, but but uh, there's 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 it's it's it really rallies people in ways we haven't seen before, um, and it clearly bothers. Uh, the coalition, it bothers the prime minister, it bothers Bibi, but I think more even so than the people on the streets, what's concerning is that you have the experts, the legal experts, the international affairs experts, and more, uh, more than anyone, it's the, it's the uh, finance and economics experts with the warnings that Israel's going to lose its, uh, its uh, credit rating. That you're going to see a brain drain. That you have uh, uh, VCs already pulling money out of Israel, and this creates real pressure, which can. But sorry, and and then the question is: Will this uh, slow down the reform? Will it? Um, will it mitigate some of some of the steps? This is you know this is a key question that I at least I I don't have the answer. I don't think. And Anthony was uh, Justice Minister Yariv Levine is going to change his mind because uh, 200 or 300 economists uh, wrote a letter. Uh, he's determined to move forward. But the question is what Netanyahu is going, is going to allow, um, especially when his coalition partners, they do have uh, lots of leverage over him because of his, uh, obviously, of his, uh, his uh, uh, court uh, situation. Right. Um, remains to be seen what... Uh... Netanyahu actually does or allows to be done, uh, and whether the protests and the real pressure, especially economic, have an impact on his thinking, um, I haven't seen any sign uh, to that effect. But uh, although, but it remains to be although seen. Although Neri, he, you know, the fact that there are reports that he's personally calling um, the credit ratings agencies and he's purposely calling some of the investment banking analysts does suggest that he, you know, he, he's he's more worried about it. Than 
I I agree with that a hundred percent. He has to be worried because uh, you know basically half the country, if not more, is in open revolt against these plans, and most of the diaspora, uh, even staunch supporters of Israel, uh, seem to be adamantly against these plans. Uh, but yes, he in public at least he hasn't given any ground, uh, any ground whatsoever. And Michael, on that note, from your vantage point in Washington, D.C. and outside of Israel, what is the prevailing mood? What is the prevailing feelings uh, with regard to these uh, judicial overhaul slash reforms slash destruction plans in Israel? Um, At least from the Israeli vantage point, it seems like the diaspora or much of the diaspora is also in open rebellion. Definitely. And I have found it fascinating (laughs) Um, because... What I expected was that the diaspora Jewish community in the United States would mobilize itself over the issues of religion and state, right? Who is a Jew and conversion and recognition of of reform and conservative Judaism inside of Israel. That may still happen, but diaspora Jewry has really seized on the issue of judicial reform and Israeli democracy. And I think part of it is a recognition that the judicial reform is not just about, and, and I hate using the word reform because it relates to reform, but <laughs> just for shorthand. Um, <laughs> the, the judicial reform, yes. The gaslighting, the gaslighting know, has gotten to you too. Um, the judicial makeover, should we, should we say that? Uh, the, the judicial reform slash makeover slash destruction um, isn't just about, obviously, the judicial issues. It's a mechanism for then doing what you want on other issues. So it's a mechanism for making sure that you can do whatever you want in the West Bank. It's a mechanism for making sure Mm -hmm. that you can do whatever you want with regard to religion and state. It's a mechanism for making sure that you can, uh, I actually don't think they'll amend the law of return, but um, that you can make it very difficult for non-Orthodox streams of Judaism to really have anything. So I think that's part of it. Part of it is this very American focus on shared values among in the U.S.-Israel relationship, but also shared values among Israeli Jews and American Jews. And I think that American Jews tend to focus on that shared value aspect more than Israelis do. Um, it's very it's very important for American Jews to feel like like this is an important, if not the driving aspect of the relationship. Um, it's very important for American Jews to, I think, see in Israel what they want to see, even, even if it didn't always exist in the way that they see it. And so in a lot of ways, it's this, it's this body blow to American Jewish identity to have Israel go down what looks like a non-democratic or, or problem, problematically democratic path, because it challenges this idea of, uh, how American Jews view Israel. So the, the the alarm here over judicial reform has really been striking. Where I've been more surprised, um, and, I, and I'm still <laughs> I'm still on the fence about about how I feel about this and whether I think it's it's the right focus, is that the Biden administration too seems to be focusing on judicial reform more than they do on issues that fall under more traditional U.S. interests and U.S. concerns. So when Blinken was standing next to Netanyahu at that press conference and um, not directly, but very obviously 
referring to judicial reforms and the need for consensus when you when you uh, push through large policy changes. He was talking about, you know, this this internal Israeli issue. Uh, he wasn't up there nearly as much talking about. He mentioned two states, but that wasn't as much of the focus, and he wasn't as much focused on Israeli-Palestinian issues. And so it was interesting to me to see the United States government, you know, forget about American Jews, really seize on this judicial reform issue as well. And I think part of it is also over this notion of shared values versus shared interests. I think part of it is probably because you see so many Israelis in the streets over the judicial reform issue, and the U.S. says, okay, like if you know, there, if there's such opposition to it in Israel, then this is something that we can pick up on as well as a concern. Um, but it has it has mentioned to me because it's not something that you would think of really in the traditional realm of U.S. foreign policy. And my hope is that it isn't, from a U.S. perspective, limited to judicial reform, quad-judicial reform. I think that connection has to be made that why, from a U.S. perspective, is judicial reform in Israel, at least the reform along the lines of, of, of what Bibi and Yariv Levine are talking about, um, why is it problematic? It's problematic because it will lead to all sorts of things in the Israeli-Palestinian arena that the Supreme Court has said cannot be done or likely would say cannot be done, that all of a sudden will be fine, uh, like retroactively legalizing illegal outposts that are built on private Palestinian land. I think that if the U.S. government doesn't make that more explicit, uh, and kind of loses sight of that connection, then not only will will it be a lost opportunity, I'm not sure it'll make as much sense in the context of U.S. foreign policy uh, than, than it otherwise would. So I do hope that um, amidst all of the very legitimate alarm over judicial reform, um, people do start to connect the dots a little bit about what it means for other issues and, and not just about what it says in terms of the relationship between the Israeli Knesset and the Israeli Supreme Court, which, while obviously interesting and concerning and relevant to American Jews and, to a lesser extent, the U.S. government, um, to me, to me, for Americans, shouldn't be the core focus. I, for one, was pleasantly surprised that Blinken went uh, as public as he did in that press conference with Bibi last week. Uh, I thought it it did have a real political impact in Israel. Uh, it was a very clear sign by. Israel's closest ally, that uh, there was real concern in Washington uh, about these uh, these judicial uh, destruction plans. Uh, by the way, for all the reasons that you mentioned, the, the knock-on effects and not just the, the actual, uh, I guess, division of powers and balance between the Knesset and government and the Supreme Court, but what it actually means in practice, what it allows any... This, this Israeli government or any future Israeli government to do in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, by the way, inside Israel proper vis-a-vis -vis minorities like Arab Israeli citizens and pretty much anyone else. Uh, but I, I, for one, was pleasantly surprised. Uh, and I was, I guess, less pleasantly surprised that uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, when Netanyahu was there on a diplomatic visit this past weekend, uh, chose not to address it in public. Uh, there was a leak uh, to our friends in Le Monde uh, that made headlines, but uh, that was uh, basically a leak with regard to what Macron told Bibi, uh, less effective than than Blinken's very public comments in a very public press conference. Uh, and I think other close friends of Israel should maybe uh, take note uh, of, of that fact, uh, because it does have a real impact on the debate inside Israel. 
Um, and again, I think we've mentioned it before. Uh, I don't know if uh, on the record in a podcast, but definitely uh, in private conversations that uh, if you do base your relationships with Israel on both mutual interests and shared values, then Israel has to live up to those shared values, which are democratic and liberal. For sure. For sure. And don't get me wrong. I think all that is critical. And if I were an Israeli citizen and living in Israel, um, and I am neither, um, and I was opposed to uh, the, the government's plans, I would be thrilled uh, at, what, at what Blinken said. And I would want other, other international officials to, uh, to, to, do, to do similar things. Um, what I'm saying is, you know, an, an American sitting here, sitting here in D.C., uh, concerned with American foreign policy, first and foremost, is that um, I want to make sure that American Jews and the U.S. government um, connect the dots, not just on the issue of Israeli democracy, but connect the dots between Israeli democracy and what it means for the Israeli-Palestinian issue and, and for two states. Right. Um, but to be clear, um, you know, I, I've got I've got. Got no problem with uh, with with Biden, Blinken, or anybody else, um, you know, raising raising these issues because obviously I do care about Israeli democracy, and I think that, uh, as I've written, I think that um, the plans that have been proposed to change the judiciary and, and alter the balance between the Knesset and the Supreme Court uh, are not going to be good for Israel in the long term. So um, I share those concerns, um, but I, I, I definitely have a, a different angle at which I'm coming at it. Uh, yeah, we. Uh... I think we're mostly in agreement, uh, if not wholly in agreement. Uh, and yes, we got that. We got that very public and on the record. Michael Coplo is uh, is concerned, uh, as, is, <laughs> as, is, as is Shira Efron. Um, yes. With that, obviously, uh, to be continued, and I'll see you both in just a few days. Uh, but thank you for now. Thanks, Neri. Looking looking forward to seeing you in person. Thanks, Neri. Thanks, Michael. Um, I look forward to spending more time with you next week. Okay, thanks again to Michael Coplo and Shira Efron, as always, for their generous time. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.